This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by a one-on-one three-evening workshop where I, Gregory Kamichuk, will look at your writing, your goals for the story, the state of your manuscript, and create a schedule that helps the book become real. Basically, what it means is I'll be your writing mentor for three evenings of your choice. To find out more about this three-evening writer mentorship, search GMB Kamichuk, Big Cartel. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork, and our excellent producer, Dan Vettemonker. We are back from a break. The long winter's nap, if you will. Um, And this is our first episode, I guess, ostensibly of our new season as we continue our ongoing coverage of the pandemic distance podcast recording struggles. (laughs) How's that for an intro, Dan? That's great. And my voice, my voice is, I'm having mic issues, which is why I sound echoey, um, but we should have it all corrected by the time the next week's episode goes up. Um, so, you know, if you're a uh, new listener, congratulations on democracy in uh, North America being restored, but our condolences on our poor sound quality. How's that? <laughs> it's been um, a few weeks. It really has. It's been for, for, I mean, it's been basically just sitting at home watching CNN all the time for me uh, quite a bit as all these events unfolded south of the border from us. Um, but yeah, it looks like everything's going to turn out okay for the most part. I think so. I hope so. And I can see Justin through my little computer monitor screen at our studio that we once shared together. We now basically alternate so that we don't overlap too often in that same shared space. So it hurts my heart a little bit to see that big wall of art behind you and know that I don't get to be there. But... I will say that neither you nor I, or Dan really, have been too idle in project creating. So why don't you catch us up, Justin, on what you've been up to low these many days and weeks? So I think last last time we chatted was just before Christmas, is that correct? That's right, yeah. That sound about right? Um, so since then, I've, uh, I've got a handful of projects that are all kind of in their infancy stages, like kind of planning and, and just kind of getting the foundation done. Um, the only thing I've really completed was um, the last of the Dragon Nanny toy boxes have been created and the toys have been spray painted and like, or primed rather. Um, and so those were kind of the last things to send out as well as um, Dragon Nanny also had some commissions as, as rewards. Um, so that kind of took up a lot of my December was getting the toy boxes ready to ship out and getting the last commissions done. Um, yeah, the first half of December was just- Are you allowed to or do you feel- Are you allowed to or do you feel comfortable naming your commission slots? Are those secret or the secret commissions or what did people ask you to draw? I'd be curious to know. Yeah, like they've all been good about me. When I finish them, I get to post them as well. So it doesn't look like I've just been 
idle for this whole time. So um, there was one gentleman who wanted a, um, a sword art online um, is a, a, a great little anime with, I think they're up to three seasons now. I've only seen the first season. So, and luckily he only wanted a scene based on the first season. Um, so it's this big floating tower that's kind of falling apart. So very much in my, my shattered style. So that worked out really well. Um, another gentleman wanted a fairly famous um, Chinese general on his horse. He's got this like awesome like gold spear. And I'm not too familiar with like the backstory of the character, but a really, really neat um, historical character. Um, and then another gentleman wanted a character from Dragon Ball Z. So I got to do a Golden Frieza, which has kind of been on my list for a while as well. So I was happy to do that one. And then the last one that I'm just finishing up is based on, what's the series? Not Dead or Alive. Leave Legends, maybe? Uh, characters from a, a, a rather large video game I'm not too familiar with, but neat characters. And he's got... Uh, yeah, like his characters that he plays in the game, customized the way he wants them. So I'm I'm having that character and another character kind of dueling it out. So that's the last one that's going out right away. Cool. Yeah. I have a follow-up question that came to me while you were asked while you were telling me that. So when you have a character that you are not familiar with or you don't know too much about, and you're being asked to do a representation in your style of this figure. What are some of your go-to like strategies for capturing what you see as the essence of a character you don't know too much about? It's usually a combination of looking up other fan art of that character and then heading to YouTube and watching like almost any character that's got a fan base behind it. Somebody will have built a like an anime, like a music video based on this character's like exploits. So like pick a, pick a famous anime or cartoon character, put it into YouTube. You're going to get all these music videos based around that character. Really? And that'll give you like a so bunch of So you watch all the multimedia love letters? It's yeah. It's basically a highlight reel of all their like best, best and worst moments kind of thing. Um, so that's been, uh, yeah, been a good tool. Yeah, that's right. You can. Oh, cool. Have you ever become a fan of one of these characters? Have you ever become a fan of one of those characters as a result of doing a commission for someone you'd never heard of? Watching one of these like multimedia love letters? I don't know if from a commission, but definitely people have like requested things um, enough times that I've ended up checking whatever it is out and becoming a fan. Most recently, a bunch of people, I've, I've been doing some, a lot of replaying old RPGs and uh, a bunch of people kept saying you should play Xenosega. You've never played Xenosega. Like go back and, and get Xenosega. And it was a game that I always wanted to get as a teenager, but never got a like hold old of old school. Yeah. Yeah. Like PlayStation one, 1997, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I I've gone back. Yeah. I've gone to the PlayStation store and bought Xenosega and, and about 25 hours into this epic old RPG that I missed <laughs> as a teenager. Um, and that's, 100% because people just kept commenting like you got to check this out recommendations. Yeah. Um, some of my questions were self-serving because I uh, was doing a cover commission uh, last couple of days. 
Um, and for somebody who's not familiar with that, you know, occasionally if you are an author and you want me to design your book cover, I'm happy to do so uh, if my schedule and my uh, interest allows. And so this one was particularly interesting because it was, um, uh, it was like my Midnight City books. It was like a PI uh, film noir style character, but it was a fantasy twist. So it's an orc private investigator vibe, like peeking through a window with Venetian blinds, like the whole deal. Um, but it's not a character, obviously, I know because it's from a book I haven't read. And meeting with the author and breaking down what the key elements of that character was uh, virtually, meeting virtually, was an interesting thing. Uh, Justin will know and any any listeners that have met me at a show will know my sketchbook is never far away. But it's difficult in a Zoom environment to <clears throat> talk through plans. So I made a new camera setup that allows me to switch it as a down view into a sketchbook so that I can talk with clients and do thumbnail sketches and do that all. So last night I did a bunch of preliminary things and I was going to then take a day off, think about it, spend a couple of days sort of pondering it, getting it together and sort of finish up by the weekend, I thought. Instead, when I got off the call, I was so like fired up by how well I was able to get at the author's request through this new online setup. Like I hadn't realized how handcuffed by Zoom I was in having somebody explain their idea to me in the way that I like to work, which is to draw it in front of them while they describe it. Uh, and finally it worked again. I was like, my magic was back that I think I stayed up until the sun rose working on that piece. I sent some of those things to you last night. Those are those ones I was sending you yesterday, Justin. Yeah. Um, great. But uh, I found myself triangulating in on three sort of different things. The, the Midnight City work that I had done in the past, this very noir-centered, uh, pulpy vibe. And then the drawing, the new drawings that I've been doing in the new style using the tablet to draw digitally for uh moon patrol and then a completely different way of approaching color and contrast that i'd been using in my eye collector pages so basically like the last eight months of pandemic skills i finally all got to use on a new piece uh in slightly different ingredients it's kind of like having a new set of spices in the uh cooking cabinet yeah. um i was having such a good time and then suddenly i was like why is it so light outside? Oh, that's the sun. I should probably go to bed. So it was nice. I haven't had that moment where I just completely lost track of all time for a good while, you know, like just um, there's always something to worry about these days. And I forgot all my worries and just made a orc private investigator peeking through the blinds with a pistol and a fedora and some really, really, um, specific Rembrandt lighting. It was, uh, it's quite wonderful. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Yeah. Why can't we have some meat? So when you do that, when you come, like, <laughs> think about an orc. Where does that, where do you, like, start to kind of come up with an image of an orc? Is it based in Tolkien? Is it just based on kind of what you think an orc is? Or is it based on what the author tells you an orc is? I'm glad you asked that, actually, because um, my secret weapon was a member of our creative community here in Winnipeg. 
So what happened was as I was doing the sketches, the author in question, um, and the book is not announced yet. So I'm being vague there because that's his business about announcing it. And then once it's announced, we'll get him on the podcast to talk about it. But um, he described the main character's nose um, as being more like a lion's and something occurred to me that I had seen a 3D rendering by Sarah Wilde in the last like couple of weeks of this crazy monster orc-ish kind of character that had this note. Like I just saw the nose that she had rendered in three dimensions perfectly. And it was the only thing I could think. And so I said it to him and I, and I explained like, I think we should reach out to Sarah and see if she minds letting us use this model or at least some elements of this model to stand in for our for our normal character. Now, what the dear listener might not know is that in the great pulp tradition of pulp cover paintings, you would usually bring in live actors, set up the lighting, that duotone, um, uh, not duotone, but um, uh, really dualistic, uh, they call it Rembrandt lighting, where it's really lit on one side and really dark on the other. You would do that with a bunch of different models. You'd pay those models for a little bit of their time, usually a percentage of what you get paid as the cover, right? You would pay those models and then you would use their likeness to help render the cover. So in that pulp tradition, I reached out last night to Sarah Wilde and said, hey, uh, would you mind sending your orc to model for my cover? <laughs> and uh, she thought that was really funny. I offered her, you know, so we're going to, we're working out all the details there, but he had the perfect chin and just the right nose. Um, I edited him, edited him uh, a fair amount to like remove. Uh, she had had all these wonderful um, bone embellishments and horns and protrusions that didn't quite fit the character that the author had described. But it would be kind of like um, uh, like the way Samuel L. Jackson is Nick Fury. He's unmistakably Samuel L. Jackson, but he's playing Nick Fury. Mm -hmm. So the way I thought about it was Sarah's orc from her personal project is playing this character in this story on the cover of this book. And it was just such a fun, like mental exercise to have, uh, have that as a resource to set up the composition and the lighting myself, but then to, you know, arrange a pose of a, of a person that doesn't exist that came out of someone's imagination, um, who was then happy to have it included. Sarah said, you know, I'm just so glad that he has a life of his own. I love this dude. Um, but I haven't had a chance to work on him very much because uh, she's busy with other projects in her pipeline. So it was like we got to collaborate on this secret other imaginary life of an imaginary character posing for the cover of a book playing a different imaginary character. And all of that was what I spent into the wee hours working on last night. And I just had a hell of a good time. It reminded me of the real power of escape in art making. Right. Yes, there was a project. Yes, I'd been hired to do it. Yes, all of these other things. I had a schedule that would let me do it over a few days. But once the fire was stoked, there was no amount of regular rest that was going to make me feel as good as following that idea right to its conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's it's part of like anyone out there who writes stories or makes art or writes music or is just involved in creative expression. They know that um, for lack of a better way to describe it, that mental illness trigger of we're like, okay, 
this is probably not good for me, but I'm going to just keep working on this until it's finished. Um, I ran down that rabbit hole yesterday and it was quite wonderful. Um, what was nice is that usually that happens when I'm supposed to be working on a different deadline. But it was actually for a client this time. Yeah, it was actually for the client that I was supposed to be working for. And I, you know, ended up finishing ahead of schedule or it's not quite finished yet because we're going to do some lighting tests and try some other things. Um, the cool thing about working digitally or the way that I'm working this out is I left all the lighting paths as separate layers. So I mixed a bunch of colors. It's like a two spot lighting effect that like splashes across the character's face, colds on one and like a warmy a neon on the other. And uh, we can play with the author's favorite colors and play with the color that will match the logo and just play around with all that lighting effect without it changing the composition, which is another thing um, that I've been learning how to do as far as working with clients is uh, figure out what part they're most likely to ask about changing and leave that as a layer that's easy to change. And barring that, offer up a point in which for the client, you can say there's certain elements we won't be able to change. Like once the composition is rendered, once this character is sort of drawn, he's sort of as he is, but we can have, we can change the lighting all day long to make you happy, right? So uh, it gives everyone a sense of uh, some control, which we all crave so deeply in this strange world we found ourselves in. So uh, it was a surprisingly fruitful evening I spent last night um, and then I had a very disheartening meeting with a, a publisher uh, this afternoon which basically pushes back my new the sequel to automatic age probably to 2022 oh, that's too bad um, which is uh, uh, sad but also not unexpected we basically had a um, uh, good news, bad news meeting of like, what are all, where are you in the project? Oh, I'm on track. Uh, where's the world in ordering books and how is that working? Oh, that's way off track. Where is conventions? What way kind off of track. insights did you get about where the publishing world is? Yeah, okay. So I think of a value to a listener here who is doing any of that kind of stuff. Um, a little context in case this is your first episode. Uh, before COVID, Justin and I would travel to anywhere between 20 and sort of 30, 35 events around the world uh, promoting our stuff um, and hand selling it uh, in person, which means that we could have a pretty bis brisk business in book sales uh, with no distributor in the middle. When you're dealing with a regular publisher, of course, they have distribution and bookstores as a model. So dealing with Great Plains, which is the publisher of Automatic Age, they were uh, filling me in on the fact that while the um, supply chain is relatively unaffected, if you need to get a book to a bookstore, there's no problem there. But bookstores themselves are all closed. And most books that people have not heard of before, um, they buy on impulse or through browsing. And so the feedback is that most book sales that are occurring, and if you look at the stats, actually, um, uh, 2020 books statistics for sales are way up. But what people are buying is very specific. 
it's usually big name authors that they've already heard of that they know of. People are buying what they know and have heard of. And so up on all the books they've been wanting to read the last couple of years from their favorite authors. So if that author has been around a while, that author has seen a huge swell in their back catalog. New authors and mid-listers and independent authors and independent bookstores have not made any gains. In fact, they have slid pretty far down the chain because that's not what people are buying. When you uh, search a new sci-fi book, what do you get? The top 10 authors will always be authors that have the biggest SEO and the most uh, people have heard of them. And then you order that book and you're off to the races. So it's it's hard for those of us who are trying to make a name for a new series um, to crack that code. Now, that's, you know, sad. But the stats are bearing out that reading in general is on the rise. That maybe what we will see post-pandemic is a uh, infusion of people who are back in the habit of reading who are now going back to events and saying, yes, I like reading. I've been reading a lot. I read more than I used to. I'll take a chance on this new book. So I'm hoping that that 2022-2023 expectation that some public events and shows will return to normal uh, will also have with it a new set of uh, well-trained readers who just are looking for new stuff. So... It's hard in the short term, but I think in the long term, it might be good for all of us uh, independent. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. I think we're going to have a, a resurgence of a lot of different things when, the, when everything finally goes back to normal, right? People are going to travel more. People are going to go out more. Um, I think the cons are going to be nuts, to be honest. When they actually get going again, the cons are going to be really well attended and people are going to be eager to get out and, and gather with their friends. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about what's coming after this is all over, but it's just a matter of getting there. <laughs> it's a matter yeah, of getting we have there. To- and we're still unsure when it's going to happen. We're still unsure of the time frame, right? Even though there's a vaccine, even though, you know, the end is somewhat in sight, we're still not sure if it's, it's going to be this year, next year, or when, but obviously for, for that publisher, they feel that to be safe, they're going to wait until next year. A good point actually to make here is that, it was not them telling me, we have to wait next year, your book is canceled or pushed back because we have a contract. It was them saying, um, what do you feel will be the best for the book? And us sort of coming up with a plan that really meant that if, we're, if we want a book to find a readership, you need to have you know, the readers available. And so rather than Uh, put my, oh my gosh, I must have my ego served and my advance paid and my book made right now, damn it. Uh, it, That just didn't make any sense. Um, It's a story I love writing. It's a story I've been working on. It ties into a bunch of other things. So all it'll mean is that I'm done way early as far as the publishing schedule goes. And that's, you know, kind of a new position for me to be way like a year early on finishing a book. Whoa. (laughs) <laughs> That's been wild, actually, to see how that goes. Think of all the review copies we can send out. Um, uh, so it was us discussing what is real rather than what we want, 
right? And so we were just looking at numbers and and it's interesting because there is a there was a member from marketing and then my editor from the book was also there and we were just sort of talking it through and it wasn't like um it was by no means a summit on here's what must be done and more because they're a smaller publisher and um I'm very nosy about the details us figuring out some other strategies that could work that maybe we haven't thought of yet. I told them lots of facts about our Dragon Nanny Kickstarter and how that backlist worked. Um, I shared some stuff that I had heard from some other uh, author friends and particularly some people who I know who have uh, who work with uh, the New York Comic Con who were giving me some sort of uh, heads up on what is likely for shows. Their fear is that when they um, when shows reopen is they think that the attendance might be maybe 20% of what it used to be. I think there's going to be some, some hesitation from people, but once people feel safe, they'll come back. I, I'm confident that they will come back. People love like the, the love of conventions is not going gone away. People still love these things. They love celebrating their fandom. So, they, so they, they, at yeah, no, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I agree with that. Numbers might be what down. we're talking about though is, well, what they're talking about is the necessity of that six-foot gap yep. will change how the space is managed and thus how the attendance would be managed. Um, and so it's not that they don't think people would return. No one has it. it you know, I am like you, Dan. Uh, as soon as it's safe, I'll be there. Mm -hmm. But um, as we have learned, most people don't do what's good for them during a pandemic and so i think what we will see is a uh a government leery of giving permission for events that gather a hundred thousand people in one place um a green light right i wow. so instead it will be do a small show have five thousand people see how many of them die <laughs> i bet you i could hold a show in the spring right and show up I don't know if it's, it would be allowed or not, but if I held, if I held the show, I did a fan quest in in June or whatever. I think I would get people showing up there, but but whether or not um, it wouldn't be probably as good as it normally is because of, uh, of still not everybody having the vaccine. I wonder wonder what it's like to have the vaccine. I wonder if you yeah. feel vulnerable. Can you do it outside? Oh yeah. Um, I approached. Uh, I actually talked to some people about that, and the cosplayers pushed back and said. Cosplay is not a great thing to do outside, apparently. So that was a, that was, that might be an issue if we do it outside. Selling prints is kind of tricky too. Oh no, that for sure be true. That's right. Yeah. So there's. Yeah, I've done it. Well, I mean, Justin and I have both done outdoor shows. They're they're a challenge. Yeah. So anyway, I just think I do I do look forward to it, but again, it's going to be a while. I was saying, I wonder if if do you guys know anybody who's got the vaccine yet? No. Yes. Oh, you do. I wonder what it feels like to be like yeah, a friend of my dad vaccine. I am immune. I have the power. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like being yeah, I'll be curious to see because uh, the 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 current science on it, which is you know ever evolving, but is that just because you have taken the vaccine does not exclude you from the possibility of carrying it to others. Right. So hopefully it won't embolden the wrong people to then take. <laughs> needless risks i think about somebody like going right. into a store without a mask saying i don't need a mask i got the vaccine screw you guys i'm good well yeah. right 
if you're, let me ask you this through the lens of a convention organizer, Dan. Let's say you have a busload of people who tell you they have the vaccine and they're not wearing masks and you have no way to prove either of those things. You can't, you got, you got to be sure. And it's going to be everyone that wears masks until we have, we get to the point where we don't have to. Right. But uh, no, I can't, I can't take them at their word. That's unfortunate, but I can't, uh, you have to have proof. And I don't know what kind of proof they're giving people. I don't even know if you get anything when you get the vaccine. Do you get a card saying you got the vaccine? You get a little stamp in your hand? I don't and know. And then how know. long is it before people start printing their own cards and forging <laughs> their own stamps? Right. Making it, yeah, I don't know. It's It's been a weird journey, this whole thing. And I've, I've been very surprised at what people have done, um, you know, to protest the various restrictions and do all kinds of different things. But um, I'm, you know, we're just going to play it safe and wait until most people have been vaccinated and then we'll take a look at when that stuff can come back. I'm optimistic about a Halloween event. I am. Yeah. I really, yeah, that's by the time Halloween, by the time, and we should have our new con here in Winnipeg. Hopefully that all works out. So we'll have a new convention <laughs> in, in October. I'm open, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I would love to be pleasantly surprised, mm-hmm. but uh, not given the way our uh, current government is handling things, I wouldn't say. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Good point. Doesn't seem like um, if you were I in want... charge, Dan. If you were in charge, Dan, I would be there. <laughs> I would be there. Okay, thank you. But you're not going to be the one in charge. No, I'm not. So I'm a little more uh, cautious. So I was curious as to what it's going to look like when things go back to normal. Like all these publishers. I imagine are getting more submissions than usual because everybody, like every creative is coming up with ideas and projects and books and sending them off, but publishers aren't necessarily pumping out as much new content. When the floodgates open, is it just going to be like triple the amount of books being published or are they just going to have a much healthier selection to choose from what they want to publish i think it that's a great point it's a great point my here's my two cents on that everybody's producing or making stuff right now but it's not necessarily making it to the world so if you're a publisher well you are a publisher justin but let's imagine you were like a a large publisher that maybe had 50 titles you had room for 50 titles a year right and your submission pile goes up the quality of that submission pile, I have to imagine, has increased. Yeah. So what I'm hoping is going to happen is the 50 books you publish are a better set of 50 books than they would have been before. But I don't think you are going to take a financial risk to publish 60 new titles or 70 yeah. new titles in that first year after things open up. That That doesn't seem like what's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is that agents and agented submissions are going to increase right um there's going to be less time for publishers to take a risk because there's so many more talented people who are stuck at home and produced books of knowable quality right that same way that what's publishers sell what's selling so if they look at their list right now and they see every book from an established series is selling more than it used to are they likely to expand an existing product line or are they going to take your new book, right? The the conservative ones are going to expand that existing publishing line, right? So 
it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the show floor because there's going to be a lot of people who are outside of traditional publishing that have a finished book that's ready to roll in a way that they've never been able to do before. I would have followed you, my brother. My captain. My king. There's a few dozen that I've been following that are actually endeavoring to finish a creator-owned project for the first time, I think, ever since I started following them online, right? They're concept artists. They're, they're people who work in video games and draw on the side. They're people who are authors that do projects, you know, on the side. This is a, they suddenly have this time, many of them, to do an actual self-directed, quality-focused project with no end in sight because they don't know when they get to go back to work anyway. So yeah. it's how they're doling away the hours. So I feel like uh, the competition for us is going to be very stiff. Actually, I was wondering about that. that too. Like, say back at conventions, what's an artist alley going to look like that first year back? Because how many, what used to be full-time artists have had to get different jobs now that when conventions become a thing again, are they going to have the luxury of traveling like they used to? to go to these conventions. So I'm wondering think, if yeah. there's gonna be a, a lot of empty tables that first little while. Or will there be tables full of people who had all year to, to produce things they loved dearly and just had no place to do it? You know, like when conventions first started, th that first big expansion, where it went from being uh, hotel rooms to convention centers. You know, I'm old enough yeah. and you and I are long enough in the tooth in the convention game to remember that swell. Yeah. That was a magical Part of what drove, oh, what a magical time. But part of what drove that was people who were hobbyists who were like, oh, maybe I'll do a show in September and would produce work all year without any thought to the commerce of it. They just produced their best work all year, whatever, small item it was they were making they were of usually exceptional quality and then they'd show up at a show sell out and then it occurred to them oh wow there's actually a business model here when the business brain overtakes the art brain often you see a drop in quality so that speed of production could fill the gap so that you sell to more customers who have less care for quality Maybe we'll see a return to that earlier space. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe everyone will be so desperate that they'll just be selling whatever's in their basement. Hey, Google, stop. <laughs> you set off my Google Home there, Greg. I don't know what you said, but... Sorry, something went wrong controlling Xbox. What? Please try again. Google, turn on Dan's Xbox. Listen, listen. <laughs> Just start playing this out of the blue. Hey Google, hey Google, stop, stop, <laughs> stop. <laughs> What's amazing about that? Hey Google, I love you. <laughs> oh my god! I, although that might have been, my son has set up some like you can set up these protocols with the Google Home and have a key phrase and then it does a set 
number of different tasks. Like my son has played around yeah. with this. So sometimes he does that from his phone. Maybe that's what happened, but it said something about space and you were talking about space. So I think it did hear you, Greg. Google, play space. <laughs> I unplugged it. I unplugged it. It's all good. Oh, <laughs> you murdered her. Yeah, that's right. I just wanted to put her to sleep for a bit. Anyway. All right. We'll probably have to edit all that out, but it was pretty funny. Um, the uh, I forget what we were talking about, but the change in uh, quality of product, I think. And yeah, you know, uh, we'll see a bit of a reset. Yeah. Because I think we we had kind of seen it from because we'd experienced so many conventions, we were starting to see a bit of stagnation of people just doing the same thing over and over again, the same booths, just doing the, the same thing year after year after year. And maybe, you know, maybe that's just from our perspective, like because we're we're there all the time, we're seeing it all the time, but it definitely felt like people weren't experimenting and bringing their a game as much as just coming to their job and you know the passion had kind of been bled away into the business it did stand out that that was occurring but I, i'll point out um oh man there was something i was going to say about that oh yeah when shows were primarily local right you were gonna, you were guaranteed almost to see the same people. If you did five shows locally in a year, you're gonna see a lot of the same faces if they're your um, your main customer, right? And we've said many times that, uh, you know, 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your repeat customers. So these are people you're gonna see all the time. When you did five shows in the same city, it behooved you to have new things for them, which I think prompted more innovation as those same people started going from city to city to city to city in all kinds of different zip codes and country codes, they didn't have to innovate as much because the audience was going to be new. Yeah. And so they could, right. Just play the numbers game. Maybe a shrinking back to local shows first before international shows become a thing again, will increase that innovation. And so uh, pursuant to that, Justin, Shows are open again. Let's play. Let's play imaginary games. Positive imaginary games. Shows are open. They're local. You haven't done shows in a while. You're planning your first small event. Let's say it's going to have a thousand people at it. Maybe two thousand people. Just small and local. What are the things that you're going to do differently now that it's post COVID? So kind of the, the silver lining for um, for like me with a business hat on for what, what happened with this whole COVID lockdown was I really took a year to build up a proper website and proper website store um, and then really get a way better handle on online sales and, and shipping product than I ever had before. And this was just a function of my my customers were still wanting to buy things and I didn't have the best setup. So I, you know, I hunkered down and took a couple of weeks and months and and built up a, a much better chasing artwork store than I'd ever had in the past. And looking forward to when conventions are a thing again, a big thing that always came up was I, I can only bring kind of the, the newest um, portfolio of work to a show. I can't bring hundreds of pieces, but now I foresee this tandem income of 
doing conventions in person, but then also for these, these people who want older work or want more specific things, I can then have them go to the store right there on the floor and custom order all this other stuff that I kind of had to tr do like a case by case basis before. So now that I have the online and the in-person stuff figured out, it's a whole, yeah, much stronger presence. Um, so I'm really excited about, about having those two things working against, like working with each other at conventions. It's funny you say that I had an interesting idea that I think you're the, you're best suited to capitalize on better than I am right now. Um, when the shows reopen, you printed those chasing artwork sketchbooks, those blank books yes. for people. I know you and I have both talked about doing another print run of those and, and what they're good for and how, you know, it's great public outreach and all that kind of stuff. But you know how Friesen's and Donovan, I know you listen to our podcast. So this is basically Friesen's idea that I'm trying to apply in the small, in the small realm is what if the next printing of our blank sketchbooks, the first four or five pages of that were color ads for prints and the web store and an example of what's available and where to get it. So that when someone is in their doodle notebook, which has a couple hundred pages of drawing and sketching, there's also this little front section, the same way that Friesen's gives those really actually quite excellent hardback sketchbooks to their customers that have the printing examples in the front. Like mm -hmm. here's all the bright color printing and all the different technology we use. And here's 10 examples of excellent printing. That's in the front of a very useful practical book that I, you know, I have two on my desk right now that I make notes in. I, I decorate them so that they uh, uh, have the right nerd cred. But basically the front of them are those pages of examples of what their business can do if you want them to do their business. There's no reason why our uh, sketchbooks couldn't do the same thing. Like here's a bunch of prints, right? And print examples, kind of like our menu sheets. And then the rest of it is the sketchbook. So that when we leave them at schools, when you give them as gifts, when you spiff off a, a loyal customer with a handy notebook, there's also a secondary outreach component to it. Might be a neat way to do it. What's that? This, my friend, is a pint. It comes in pints? Oh, I'm getting one. The catalog, also from us idea, just printing a really nice like eight and a half by 11 double-sided. So you could include that with every single book order that comes, that, that happens, and then you can update it, right? Like you can have a 2021, the first six months, like here's everything that's available. And then as new things come out and you do new things, all you have to do is update that eight and a half by 11 and reprint new ones. And then they just keep going in every single book that goes out the door. Right. What if there's a way, you know, because the first thing I would do if I had a blank sketchbook with an insert is I'd throw that insert away. So yeah. if there was a way to make that a sticker or some kind of thing that you can adhere to or insert or connect to the existing blank book in a way that makes it kind of counterproductive to get rid of it. So you might as well just leave it there. I, I, the, the time constraints like if you, the, the sketchbooks that I printed, I think I printed like three years ago and like they don't, they don't move super quick. So had I done that, 
they'd be very outdated by now. Like I'd still have some of the product, but so I just worry like if it's kind of how, how long are you going to be happy with that catalog page before you feel like it's very outdated? Yeah. Good point. Good point. I wonder what the middle ground is. Maybe the dear listener already has a better idea. Feel free to share it with us. Um, but I love when you have something that you can give to someone who has been a loyal supporter of your work that actually has a practical value to them. And that's what I think those blank books are. If they're, you know, if you're a writer or a, um, an artist, a blank book is useful to you. Um, but you also have to keep the lights on. So what yeah. is a way that you can remind people that there are ways they can support you? Um, I mean, I suppose you can just put a link to your website on there. What if I the feel like there's something that eight and a half by 11 is double-sided. What if the front is your newest piece when you print it? So it's a piece of artwork oh, on the like front that. and on the back is here's what I've come out with in the last year. And then every couple of months, when you have a bunch of new stuff, you reprint a new free print that comes with everything, but it's also got a catalog on the back. See, now you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Then That's like, beautiful because it might if you like it, it yeah. If they're fans uh, that pin it on their wall or their bulletin board or, you know, keep it or frame it or whatever. And if you made it on the right print quality, like the stuff we normally do, but you just make the reverse printing. And we looked at, actually, we've had this discussion about taking yeah. back, back catalog prints and printing things on the back of them, which we yeah. discussed with the printer. And that is possible. So you could take stock of things that you are happy to give away to customers for free because it's back catalog stock, print that new catalog on it. And then you could use less paper, right? You'd reuse it before you recycled it. It doubles as an ad, but it also has the great print quality that our um, limited prints would have. Yeah. Yeah. I expect, I hope to find a dear listener doing the same trick one day out there. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Like as a child, the, my fav, almost my favorite parts of any toy was the back of that um, blister pack that said, also from, you know, McFarland toys, like look at all these other cool things that I don't have but would dream like drool over, right? Like you would have the one toy and that was great. But like, imagine if you had 30 of these other like amazing looking toys on the back. Ah, the double-edged sword of free market capitalism. Yeah. So sharp, so sharp on our young minds. Oh, those delicious times. The GI Joe list, the catalog that would sometimes come when you got a vehicle, it would have a couple of pages, like a folded leaflet that showed you all kinds of other things. You're right. Mm -hmm. The nostalgic power of that is quite profound. I had, um, so we should harness it. Looking back, I had um, the Dino Riders movie on VHS and <laughs> I didn't know they made a movie of Dino Riders. Well, it was, it was like, I think the first like three episodes just kind of like put together, but they actually put commercials in the movie of the Dino Rider toys. So as a kid, not only did I love the, the movie, but then it would have ads for the most epic Dino toys with robot parts on them, like scattered throughout. 
So I think my mom probably hated that movie because it was like just a, it was constant me running and being like, can I get this? Can I get this? And See, this is the part of the overlap between I want to be a working artist. Um, I want to make art and I have to sell art that I despise that like that part of marketing, which we all know works that yeah. it does yield results. I wonder at the ethical ramifications of programming young children's minds. Um, <laughs> like, well, there's a reason uh, we're not allowed to do that anymore. Like they, they got rid of that. They changed the rules in the eighties. All the cartoons were basically ads for, for toys. And then they changed the rules. Now the cartoons aren't as good because they, they can't do that anymore. Do yourself no a favor and, and YouTube Dino Rider toy commercials. They're like still the coolest looking. Oh, yeah. Toy. No, I, I, I follow a couple different channels, uh, both on YouTube and TikTok, that explore nostalgia like this and explore old toys and old ads. Uh, I love that stuff. I, I live for it. So that's a, it's a big part of my day is going through stuff like that for sure. It's a lot of fun. I remember, I love how the yard, the backyards of these kids would be so, like they'd have waterfalls in their backyard and rocks and like a quarry. They had all this awesome setup for all their toys. I'm like, who has that? I and had a garden in the sandbox. Of bricks to yeah. like of plastic bricks for the toys to smash through. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, they didn't sell those plastic bricks. If they no. did, they, right? they would have sold a lot of those plastic bricks. Yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. Um, one thing that I like about the kids books that we sell, we sell them to the parents. We sell, you know, basically books with messages. So the parents buy the book and then read it with their kid. And then if their kid likes it, it's, it's, it's the right direction of that interest, right? A kid haggling a parent to buy a thing. I don't like so much as a parent deciding this is a value for my children. Um, I prefer that flow myself as a parent. Um, well, I would also support my kids support local artists, you know, by buying your books and that kind of stuff. Like, I like to promote that with, with my kids. My daughter, by the way, loves um, Dragon Annie. Um, yeah. And she she, lo she loves the artwork. That's like her main thing. And that's, again, she wants to do this stuff, right? She wants to be an artist. So I, 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 I give her that stuff to show her what's possible, what you guys do and what's possible for her to do. And she loved finding the... Um, the dragon uh, that we named uh, in the book. So it, it was just an overall, just a big hit with, with the kids for sure. But so, that's an example yeah. of a book that would, it'd be so different if we were like in a company, like, you know, those old, uh, like, well, like any kind of company with a marketing team and like, you know, it, it'd be more condensed. There wouldn't be the, with, with our publications, like the creativity and the story comes first and kind of the business and how to target people comes second. And I think that's like, so that's a book that would be completely different if there was a team like that attached to it. And I, I think for the dear listener, it's important to point out that it doesn't mean that we don't care about the business side, but we do the book first. And when the book exists, then Justin and I switch hats. And we then look at the object as it occurs, right? This object now, as it exists now, how do we sell this object? Uh, if we had had a marketing team and a pre-sales team, there is no way that there would have been those days at the beach pages in Dragon Nanny because it wouldn't have been 
worthwhile from their perspective to put those in. You know, bullying is necessary for the story. So how do we get bullying into this book and show how bullying is bad? And I bring that up because that's- Yeah, you get that hot button Yeah, there's, yeah. How can we shoehorn in hot button issues into this story, regardless of whether it fits or not? But that's what sells, so yeah. Yeah, and that's the difference between, say, what we do and, say, what a, you know, classic entrepreneur will do. There's a lot of people, you know, I went to the entrepreneurship program at Red River. And what I will, what I'll say is actually paraphrasing of something I heard Justin say once after he had had a few uh, fizzy pops at a uh, convention. We were sitting around and someone said, you guys are a small business. You're entrepreneurs. I don't know if you remember this, Justin, but you said, no, we are not entrepreneurs we're artists who figured out how to sell what we made an entrepreneur doesn't care if they're selling coffee or cars or widgets as long as they're making money we want to sell the stories we make so we're not really entrepreneurs in that regard and i i I agree with that i'm paraphrasing you and you were maybe not quite as eloquent eloquent as that (laughs) because you i had had a few fizzies but uh, i remember uh, that moment of being like, all right, this is the right kind of guy to share a studio with. Because uh, deep down, right, if Dragon Annie wants to go to the beach, Dragon Annie's going to go to the beach for a few days. <laughs> okay, we're going to let that happen. This is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Aragorn. You owe him your allegiance. If you are so tied into just what sells, you miss out on why you're making it in the first place. Um, speaking of nostalgia, one of my big, like uh, one of the things I loved the most when I was a, a young reader was the Forgotten Realms fantasy books, particularly those written by Douglas Niles and uh, Ari Salvatore. Oh, yeah. Now Ari Salvatore has been writing these Drizzt Burton books forever. He's still writing them. And I recently watched a video of him talking about um, his creative process and people asking him like, oh, how do you feel about being so successful writing these books? And he was like, oh, I don't even think about it. And they're like, oh, well, you know, that's, you, make, you were so successful that you kept making them. He's like, no, I kept making them. And luckily they were successful. Yeah. Um, and his point that I liked yeah. the most was... Uh, a sunset costs the same for us both, he says. And that's what I stop work to go and look at is the sunset. It doesn't matter what car I could buy. I'd still want to stop and look at the sunset. And so if you are only making your art so that you can have a nicer car, um, I guess that might make you an entrepreneur, but it doesn't make you very honest in the kind of life you're living, right? And so, yes, it's tricky to make a living selling art, but if you are going to, when people talk about sellouts, that's what they're talking about, right? People who find out that um, pink fuzzy cat drawings sell more than what they like to draw. And so they give up on what they like to draw to sell pink fuzzy cat drawings. Um, I will also add a caveat that as far as I know, pink fuzzy cat drawings are not a viable business plan. Are the are the are the cats fuzzy or are the drawings fuzzy? Oh, 
Now you're talking. That is a genius idea, Dan. Fuzzy drawings. Tactile. Pink fuzzy drawings of cats. Right. That's what we want. Wait. Remember velvet paintings? Yeah. Maybe we could bring that back. There you go. Yeah. Those are cool. Like Instead of Velvet Elvis, Velvet Internet Cats. My gosh. That would work. Forget writing my next book. I'm going to just produce Velvet Internet Cat drawings. Right. Although I do feel like um, one area of fan art that I feel compelled to leap into that I've never felt compelled to leap into before now, um, I feel like there's going to be a fair amount of Bernie Sanders fan art when the convention season hits. Um, Everyone's going crazy about You're it. laughing, Dan. But I I mean it. I've seen a lot of artists lately drawing a lot of Bernie Sanders, and I cannot figure it out. But guaranteed, there's going to be a whole subsection of fan art at shows that it's just Bernie Sanders and those god darn mittens. Yeah. I, I <laughs> he, showed up, he showed up at the inauguration, which I guess it was kind of cold in Washington there that day, but he was dressed like a minus 30 degree Winnipeg winter. Like he was bundled up, right? <laughs> He's not having any of that cold. And that's why I think people like He's that. He's an so old much. man. He's an old man, yeah. yeah. So is Joe Biden, but whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, but Joe Biden has the hot lights on him. That's right. And the sniper scopes. <laughs> Bernie just has a folding lawn chair in a cement bunker. That's all he had to sit, you know, like, yeah. oh my goodness. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to that subset. Yeah. Also, I'm glad that all the pro comics will be gone from Comic-Con. Or maybe they won't. Maybe they'll all be back in full force. All the what kind of comics? There was at New York Comic Con, there was a bunch of tables selling super, super right wing pro Trump comics. Really? Um, yeah. That's interesting. So we'll see uh, what happens. Now, this is not to say I don't think they should be allowed to do that, right? Um, I am, uh, free speech is important. I just think hate speech should be limited, right? Free yeah. speech, yes, hate speech, no. So um, I would be curious yeah. to see what that looked like, what a pro-Trump Trump comic book looks like. I looked through some of them. I stood, I, I let them do the spiel at a few, like yeah. let them sell it to me. Um, Unfortunately, I think my um, velvet scarf and my tight jeans probably gave you away. They, they they gave me away. They could they were very dubious about my interest in their properties. Um, but want they wanted the sale, but they felt like it was a trap somehow. Okay. And uh, you know, in a way, they were right. Yeah. No, again. Should they be allowed at shows? You're a show organizer, Dan. I mean, as long as it's not offensive, right? You're right. As long as it's not hate speech or offensive or, and that we, we push the line. Like we have a number of artists here in Manitoba who do push the boundaries of what they can, what they can put up there. Uh, and I've had people- I'm looking at you, Ghost it. Dick. A ghost Dick, yeah, Ghost Dick. Uh, I've had a conversation with Nico about that. Um, and generally he says that he doesn't get a ton of, he gets some hate, uh, from people saying it's inappropriate to draw a penis, um, as a main character. Of I your think the computer. problem there is he has four kids books alongside it. He's got, like, it is? His, okay. Yeah. He's got his like, you know, family friendly bears yeah. book. And then beside it is the phallic drawing. So it's kind of like, a. 
<laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta pick you a lane. Your audience. No, but I, I've had a different I've had different people say um, they've done parodies of like, speaking of, of Dragon Ball Z parodies of Dragon Ball Z, but in a, a bit of a sexual with a sexual joke involved in it. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'd rather you not have that up on display for everybody to see. But you can put it, have it somewhere, and be able to show people that it is available if they want to buy it. But just like don't a big have sign it that says, uh, yeah, don't put it for a big sign that says, "Ask me about my Dragon Ball porno or whatever." Right? <laughs> yeah. um, I'll, I'll say though, in the defense of Nico Rudolph and Ghost Stick, which you you know anyone listening can feel free to Google. You'll find some interesting things. Um, at least everyone, you know, at least half of the people on earth have a penis. So having a joke about a penis isn't right really that bad alongside your kids' books. Um, you could argue that me having Dragon Natty next to Midnight City is just as offensive. Someone who is interested in Dragon Natty that opens Midnight City, a body horror uh, murder mystery, you know, could be pretty offended that those two things are sharing a table. So, um, and since um, hatred and murder aren't something that everybody should do, you could say that Midnight City is more offensive than a little Willy comic, right? True. It's hard to say. Um, but I think what Ghost Dick, uh, Dragon Nanny, and Midnight City all have in common is they don't tell you who you should hate. Right. And, so and that's, that's, what the Trump, that's what the Trump comics did. Is what you yeah. Said, right? They told you who you should hate. Yeah. Right. Okay. Who didn't? Who wasn't allowed to live there if they uh, wanted to? So yeah, it's a weird world, man. It's gotten me so nostalgic just talking about shows in such depth that I I feel like I need to make a book set up just on my desk here and uh, maybe sell it to my yeah, kids. Just have your kids walk by and pretend to be interested in your stuff. Yeah, to Dude, pretend to be one. interested. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> That's hurtful. That's the hurtful. um. Icon has they're doing their Winterfest event uh, virtually. Yeah. Um, the other day I set up my virtual table for the for the Icon Winterfest, which was kind of fun. Um, what I really appreciated about that as well was they were charging five dollars for a table for the virtual events versus there's been some conventions who really tried to they made some some pretty outrageous promises and were asking for some pretty big fees to basically list your online store on their site for a weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, well, and I'll say this, actually, this actually just prompted it. You reminded me, you had asked me earlier feedback from the publisher about book sales and related things. I did a bunch of online book festivals, right? Yeah. And at a book festival, if you get a couple hundred people to come and sit and listen to you yammer on about how you made it, uh, the book, I mean, not like it in your life. Um, it often would result in a fairly uh, reasonable amount of sales, regardless of whether they'd heard of your book or not. And what we saw was almost no uptick in in sales, like uh, virtual appearances at book events held virtually do not translate into sales. Are they fun? Yes. Do they support readers? Yes. And writers? Yes. Uh, is it financially viable to you, the small publisher or small press, to count on it for any kind of revenue? No, definitely not. Right. Yeah. So, um, which everyone was experimenting with whether or not you could do that. But there's just no substitute for, hey, I heard that person speak. I liked what they were saying about their book. 
here is their book. I'm going to take a chance. And all of that happening in a 10 minute space. If it's four clicks away and yeah, now you're not, there's no point. Right. It's there's a the connection, right? They make a connection with you in that event, in that physical space. They come down to your, after your, after your um, panel or whatever, they come down to your table and they, they continue the conversation with you there. And you have another chance to kind of to sell them on the book. So there's more, uh, interaction there. The uh, I find the virtual events to be very passive. For the most part, people sit and watch. Maybe they'll have questions for the speakers and that kind of stuff. But other than that, they don't click beyond that. They don't tend to not click deeper into the into the chat or whatever to get at the actual. And again, a lot of people are still somewhat. I mean, I know that everyone's buying online now because we have to. But I think that overall, people still prefer. I certainly still prefer in-person shopping to online shopping. I still don't. I still would rather buy something in person. So yeah, without a doubt. Without yeah. a doubt. I'm the same. Um, probably wrap it up. We're getting close yes, to we should. Yeah. Well, we have ranged all over about the foibles and futures of shows and publishing. It's been nice to uh, return to the conversation with you gents on this inaugural episode of the new season. See what I did there, Dan? Inaugural. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> of Super Bulb Science. This is Gregory Kamichek encouraging you to join the fight and make comments.